Life is uh, most, most essentially a freely unfolding process. We have all kinds of ideas about what's happening and why and how and what it means. But despite all our attempts at cleverness, life remains extraordinarily free, ungraspably free, mysteriously free. We might sense that sometimes. Somebody wrote me a note yesterday about having gone out in the evening and laid under the stars. And firstly, you know, that not remembering the last time they'd been able to do that. And, you know, some of the moments like that maybe beneath the kind of spread of infinity of the night sky. We might sense the essential, mysterious, unknowableness. And in that unknowableness, the free unfolding that life is. And life being indivisible this too this life this life that I call body, heart, mind, me this too most essentially is a freely unfolding process and yet Onto that free unfolding process, I tend to layer all kinds of ideas. Onto this freely unfolding process of life, we tend to laminate on a lot of views. In participating in this freely unfolding process, we tend to get stuck a lot. So much so, and to the extent that we, we can't see it as freely unfolding. We start to see it as seeming to require a lot of effort from me to make it happen. To make my life happen. Seems like a lot of hard work. To make inner life happen, to make outer life happen, to make social life happen, to make working life happen. And those things might well take some effort. But we tend to laminate that onto the idea that to make life itself happen. The bare practice that we have of sitting and doing nothing. Letting breath happen. Letting bodily expression happen. Letting the natural unfoldingness 
of body and heart and mind happen. Can be a profound, radical reminder to us in any moment, in every breath. That this goes or this has a freeness to its unfolding. I don't need to do anything to breathe. That might be news to some of us. We might find that we've spent a couple of days here kind of trying to breathe, sort of sucking and blowing. I hear the bell ring and it's like, (laughs) the end of a period of hard work. Oh dear. So yesterday, we looked a little bit at how we can get stuck around the free unfolding process of life with wanting, with the force of wanting. And today I'd like to look at how we can get stuck, how the free unfolding of life can get obscured through our ideas, our beliefs, our views. So you might remember yesterday we characterized the force of desire as what I want. We might characterize today's exploration as what I think. And I'd like to take a kind of broad trajectory that looks at what I think about life, what I think about others, and what I think about myself. We can have ideas about anything and everything. We are an unlimited kind of idea-producing factory. But... For the purposes of our, our inquiry, these three areas, well, there's a, which have a particular colouring effect on how we perceive what's actually this free unfolding process of life. So firstly, what do we think about life? You know, what we think about anything at all is... Um, we, we like to imagine that we think with kind of free will. We like to think of ourselves as agents of free will, that I make up my mind about. It gives us a nice sense of kind of autonomy and agency and um, adultness. You know, I can think for myself what I think about things is. But if we investigate our ideas, our views, thoughts don't come out of nowhere. Our thinking life is conditioned, formatted. It's formatted by our our upbringing. It's formatted by our parents. It's formatted by our education. It's formatted by our cultural background and experience. It's formatted by all the experiences that we kind of take in particularly when we're very young, where we take those experiences in kind of sponge-like. And we might recognize some or many of the, the patterns of thinking we have, the, or the, the views that we hold, as being either um, built upon all of that conditioning, or 
as reactions against some of that conditioning. And we might notice with regard to our parents' views that we either inherit in some way our parents' views or we strangely enough find ourselves with a kind of diametrically opposite view around something to our parents. Either take on or react against. In the the same way that we found, uh, given that so much of our experience is a wanting of one kind or another, that we'd, we'd really be well served to understand what, what happens in that wanting process. Then in the same way, because so much of our life is a thinking about, a producing views about, or a regurgitating views about how things are, then we'd be very well served to see what, what's happening in those views. How are they unconsciously shaping my sense of the world, my participation in this freely unfolding life? A big part of what most of us have as a view on life is a Judeo-Christian, a Judeo-Christian cosmological mythology, you might say. I know that's a bit of a mouthful. And I say most of us because uh, that's not necessarily the case. Some of you may have been brought up outside of a European culture, Some of you I know have some Asian background, for example, and you may have been brought up in an Asian cosmological mythology. And uh, the same applies to all cosmological mythologies. They are just that. I'm sorry I can't find a shorthand word of shorthand way of saying cosmological mythology and yet they seem because they're so hardwired in they seem automatically and unconsciously to be right it's kind of interesting for us in this period in history in Europe because we're in the process and it's a process that's already lasted a couple of hundred years or more of actually shifting between cosmological mythologies shifting from a one Judeo-Christian which tells us basically that God created the world in seven days etc etc you know the shtick right? you know the, the story and uh, some of us grow up with a very literal very literal I mean like, unbelievably literal uh, adherence to that some of us are a more kind of extrapolated version of that. Some of us just a vague version of that. And some of us may have well have grown up in a, in a quite clearly and strongly atheistic sense where there's a rejection of all of that. <coughs> Nevertheless, whichever version 
you grow up in. That sense that somehow God created the world and uh, uh, man and woman are the kind of summation of the fruits of his labours. And uh, something went wrong quite early on. (laughs) That's called original sin. And since then we've been groping around trying to get back into his favour. And at some unknown moment in the future, it's all going to be wiped out. Individually, we're all going to be wiped out. And there's some kind of threat of some kind of, you know, all at once kind of wiping out that God might do. And however that happens, in that wiping out, that's the end of life, right? So we have to one life cosmology. And at the end of that life, either heaven awaits us or hell awaits us, or if we've grown up with an, an atheist kind of view, nothing awaits us. Worms <laughs> await us. Right. So that's my, the important point is that's, that's a cosmological mythology. right? It, because we're in the shift from that into a scientific cosmological mythology, it may be for many of us, maybe most of us, that that already looks just like a mythology, that, that Judeo-Christian one. And yet, for anyone who grows up within a mythology, the mythology seems to be true. It's just true. It's, it's how life is. In some uh, cultures, the world rests on a turtle, a giant turtle's back. Right? That might seem to us just a mythology. But for people growing up within that, it's true. It seems to be true. So for those of us, you have to see where you find yourself in this, probably the majority of us have grown up in that shift in a, what's a predominantly scientific cosmological mythology. And because of that, of growing up in it, it probably seems true to us. Something about a big bang, some expansion of time and space, matter, um, I get a bit fa- hazy on it here, uh, planets, hydrogen, uh, amoebas, um, some kind of developmental process, uh, bent over apes, slightly more standing up apes, fully upright apes, us. Right? That's our cosmological mythology. And that's, that's really what it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a way, it's a description of life that somehow gives us a sense of our place in life. It seems to be impossible, or I don't think anybody has ever grown up without a cosmological mythology. It seems to be part of human nature to explain to ourselves the way things seem to be. And there's usually various um, carriers of the authority of that vision, which in a religious cosmological authority, uh, mythology have been priests traditionally, and in a current rational, scientific, cosmological mythology seem to be scientists. 
So we have this kind of story. That's what. Oh, there's that's the shorthand word for cosmological mythology, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> story. That could have saved us all some time. Yeah. We've got this story about our place in life. We may just blindly accept it. We may question it. We may not like it. We may adopt some different story. Some of us may have kind of, in, in deepening our interest in and practice of Dharma, may have adopted an Eastern cosmological mythology where, wherein we kind of substitute a one life view for a many lives view we substitute a story that we don't like basically for one that we prefer so in terms of the in terms of the story we've got this sort of scientific version of the history of the universe That's what a cosmological mythology is. The story of the origin of things. The origin of the universe and the origin of us, where we come from. But science is is unusual as a mythology in as much as it, uh, it doesn't have a... It doesn't... At least... Some of you, if you're involved in science might well disagree, but at least in terms of its story like that, it doesn't really have a moral dimension. And so we're actually, most of us, stuck between two mythologies, which is in a rather unusual position. Most people grow up within a strong mythology, whereas we have one of the history of how we got here, which most of us adhere to a, a scientific view, and yet we've also got a moral mythology, a sense of right and wrong, a sense of life and death and meaning, but still determined mostly by a Judeo-Christian mythology. It doesn't mean we have to accept that or believe in it. We might uh, think of ourselves as humanist rather than religious or atheist, as I say. But nevertheless, our moral dimension, our moral considerations, our sense of our moral obligation to others, our sense of doing good or, or not doing good, uh, and our sense of our life and our death and any idea we have of beyond death. That's a conditioned view. If we'd grown up in a different culture, it would be a different view. Whatever seeming certainty we might have around moral questions or questions of life and death and meaning about the origins or nature or possibilities of the way life is they're just a story we've been told that story could easily have been different that story is different for vast uh, amounts of the population of the planet that we share. We inherit, we've inherited different stories. And if we don't realise that they're just stories, if we don't actually investigate how we adhere to those stories as truth, then we end up with a, a blinkered view 
we end up, just through the the product of our conditioning, we end up clinging to a view of how life is. In its beginnings, in its actualizations, in its possible futures. Life is a freely unfolding process. So we're invited, I would say, if we're really serious about wanting to know life as deeply, as fully, as freely, as immediately, as intimately as we can, we have a responsibility, I would say, to investigate our adherence to belief in those kinds of ways. What might it mean to meet life in a way that's not filtered through our mythologies, our beliefs, our inherited stories? What might it mean to use this capacity we have that it goes beyond that is beyond belief? This capacity for a direct cognition, which we call awareness. This capacity for uh, this endlessly deepening capacity to, to sense into, to know directly. If we use this capacity to inform ourselves about the way life is, rather than a second hand Inherited, endlessly repeated, subconsciously reinforced story about the way life is. As we sit here together, As we listen to the sound of birdsong outside, the sounds in the room, and the sense of the space around us, does our contact with life, is it the result of stories, ideas? Can it be adequately described in terms of any kind of origin mythology? Are we willing to put aside what we think we know in order to find out in real time, in an alive way, moment by moment. So that's 
That's our acquired mythology around the history. How we got to be here, what our place in life is. And then we also have a kind of acquired, if that's a cosmological mythology, we have an acquired operating mythology. The main operating mythology we've grown up in is a kind of is the one of consumerism, basically. We've grown up in a capitalist, consumerist society. And what we've absorbed, the story that we've absorbed is that the way to move through life and the way to give meaning to life is by getting, having, doing, acquiring and becoming. That's our operating mythology. We might agree with it, we might disagree with it, but don't underestimate the power of that cultural mythology. And we feel the weight of expectation on us to get, have, do and become, acquire, attain. It's interesting that you know, the Buddha spoke about the three primary forces that drive human delusion, that drive human ignorance, that drive human clinging, as being what he calls greed, hatred and delusion. It's kind of shorthand for referring to the whole gamut of human ways of getting stuck, basically. And two and a half thousand years later, those same forces seem to be alive and well. And given that we live in a much more globalised and much more institutionalised world than two and a half thousand years ago, those forces also have become increasingly globalised and institutionalised. You know, the whole corporate consumer culture that runs so much of our lives is the institutionalization of greed. The worldwide industrial military complex is the institutionalization of hatred. And I would say the globalized interwoven media empires are the institutionalization of delusion. Media as a way to what? Entertain. Sometimes in the name of informing, but often uh, certainly in its most in its coarsest Manifestation and its coarsest manifestation is by far the, the largest than um, to entertain, to distract, to confuse, to numb our attention. Those are the operating mythologies of our world. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily completely caught by them. But if we're to really investigate what we think about the world, 
then part of that investigation has to be a recognition of the way our thinking is formatted, directed, one might even say controlled, if we're not careful, by those forces, by those operating mythologies. And just another, another way in which Another mythology we seem to labour under, which is a little difficult to speak about. Maybe I could call it our state-of-the-world mythology. It seems to be a, a, a very strong trait of humans that as we get older, we think things are getting worse. Every generation seems to share it. Every generation seems to say, oh, young people nowadays, when I was young. There's a very interesting writing by Lao Tzu, who was a a contemporary of the Buddhas. So he's writing 2,600 years ago in rural China, when he's an old man. And he says, uh, things are so busy now. When I was young, people had time for each other. Things didn't move so fast, etc., etc. So, what does that mean? Have things just gotten faster and faster for two and a half? Th- have people had less and less and less time for each other? Or is there an op- uh, 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 a state of the world mythology at work, a view in us that suggests things are getting worse? I have to read this one other thing to you. It's from an Assyrian tablet. And I was so surprised when I saw this that I did everything I could to check its veracity. And I found it cross-referenced in lots of different places, so I can only assume it's true. It's from a tablet that was found in Assyria. And it's from 2800 BC. So that's like four, nearly 5,000 years ago. Right, nearly 5,000 years ago. Ready? The earth is degenerating today. Bribery and corruption abound. Children no longer obey their parents. Every man wants to write a book. And and it's evident that the end of the world is fast approaching. And that... It's so interesting. We talk about celebrity culture now, right? And this whole kind of reality TV thing and everybody, the Warholian 15 minutes of fame. 5,000 years ago, every man wants to write a book. (laughs) We live in a a world at the moment where we have a strong sense. We might express it in, in a slightly different way that than this, but we hear a lot in terms of ecological crisis and resources crisis and uh, energy crisis and uh, various crises that the end of the world is fast approaching. We have initiatives to save the planet, which is a rather strange kind of human arrogance to it, because let's remember the planet itself is not in any danger. So it's us, our survival may well be in, uh, 
under threat. But what a strange arrogance to save the planet. Somehow, that sense that the end of the world is fast approaching is a very strong one. When I was growing up, it was much more about nuclear war, seemed to be the way that the end of the world was fast approaching. And acid rain, you remember acid rain? What happened to acid rain? (laughs) You know, for uh, many of us, our parents' generation or grandparents' generation, Nazism seemed to be the the, the way the end of the world was fast approaching. Etc., etc. It's not to it's not to dismiss or to deny the very real uh, problems, uh, issues, and ways that the, the, the things of our world need attention and possibly an urgent attention. But it would be very, very hard for us to really see what needs attention if we don't understand the way the state of the world mythology might be running through our minds. So whether it's the sense of the past, cosmological mythology, the sense of the present, operating mythology, the sense of the future, this what I'm calling a kind of state of the world mythology, or uh, everything's getting worse kind of mythology, These are powerful forces that shape our sense of what we think is going on in the world. What we think the world is. And it invites us to look in a way that's not trapped by a view. It doesn't mean that we we can't just delete those views. That's the nature of conditioning. They're built up in us over time. We We can't delete them. Or necessarily even step outside of them. But we can, um, we can listen to life in a way that doesn't stop with the authority of thinking. We can meet life in a, more, in a realer way, in a more immediate way, in a more alive way, in a more direct way so that our views actually can become transparent. We can see through them. We can see the way they have shaped and tend to shape our thinking and not be fooled by them. views about each other. You know, all these are large subjects. I'm not watching the time kind of tick away. And then I start to think, oh, views about each other. We could go on a long time. The way our views of each other, the way our views in relation to each other um, cause us to get stuck. Stuck in the view where we think we know another. Because of some very, very partial view. 
where we find ourselves in conflict with another because of some difference in view. Right? I'm convinced I say one thing and you say another thing. I say it's like this, you say it's like that. It might be our political views. It might be just our memory of what happened yesterday. Right? No, no, it was like this. No, no, it was like that. And the nature of conflict around views is that both people think they're right. That's amazing. That's amazing. That I, you know, what does it do to my sense? I'm so sure I'm right. But if I actually just reflect that you're so sure you're right too, what does that mean? If we can have two opposing views, how to know who's right? I mean, it's me, obviously. (laughs) But the fact that we have a conflict of views says much more about the nature of views than it does about who's right. Even if it's true, my view might be. Probably is. More clear, more well thought out, more uh, something. Writer. Writer. But that's not really so relevant in terms of the conflict. What's relevant is being able to, again, with the transparency, being able to see through the view, to see the other through the view. Because in just the same way that I'm able to construct a view that leads me to the conclusion I'm right, in, in the same way the other is constructs a view that leads them to feel they're right. And when we can see that through the banging up of our conflicting views with each other, we're able to actually to disagree, maybe. It doesn't mean we shouldn't hold a view. But we're able to hold our view lightly enough to see the other. To love the other, in fact. To to feel an intimacy with, a connection with, a meeting with, an allowing of, a real, not just a tolerance of, but an embracing of the other. Even when there's a, a very different view, an opposing view. And if we can't do that, if we can't see through our view, all we've got is the conflict. And then having to defend one's rightness. Having to invest in being the one who's right. Which may well be simultaneously undermined by the fear of being the one that's wrong. Some of us really need to be right a lot. We kind of shore up our sense of self-worth or of uh, uh, seeming security by trying to be right. Others of us also, sometimes we shore up our sense of ourself through the need to be wrong. We may have been told so much when we were young, you're wrong, you're wrong that we internalize that so much that we kind of need to be wrong in order to feel some kind of familiar sense of ourselves. And we're sure, oh yes, oh yes, you you must be right. So we can either get locked into being right or we can get locked into being wrong. 
to be free in the views, to not cling to views, to be able to see through the view. For the heart to be at ease. With the other. Even when the views don't aren't in harmony. So in some ways the basis really of compassion. The basis of being able to really, as I say, not just tolerate, but really embrace. Really allow another into our heart in a way that the difference in idea, the difference in view, the difference in thought, the difference in politics doesn't have any purchase. Even though it may well be there. It's not that we need to move to agreeing on everything. Oh, you see that a lot among Buddhists. Oh, they're always trying to agree with each other. Always trying to be so nice to each other. One of my teachers calls that idiot compassion or muddled meta. Since we try to get some commonality by by agreeing. No, we can disagree. We can hold very different views. We don't want to do away with the difference, do away with the views, but to be able to see through them. So we're invited. Our practice in this is the invitation to see where I get stuck in a view about how you are, how he is, how she is. And when I not just have a view, hold a view, but when I cling to that view so much that it produces anger, moral outrage, indignation, some other kind of uh, strong, afflictive emotion that burns me. That burns me in the suffering of, of, of having to feel so right. Or burns me in the, the, the feeling so wrong. Or burns me in, in just the kind of the, the how uncomfortable it is to feel in conflict with, banging up against, struggling against. The other. And then the whole realm of views about ourselves. How many views about yourself have you come up with since you've been here? How many thoughts that start off with I am so or I shouldn't be so or I ought to be more. How many of those kind of self-reflective ideas, sometimes self-reflective arrows, either the self-views of inflation, oh, I'm so, right? Or the self-views of deflation. Oh, I'm so. It's hard to know how to speak about this in just in a, in a short time. I teach a week-long retreat every year. 
just about self freedom from self view from painful self view so i'm not uh, hoping to try and condense that into the few minutes that we have but you know any self view that you can manufacture however much you might be seduced into believing it in that moment it's just not true there is no true self view what we are what this is too vast to be measured too free to be judged too immeasurable to be defined life is a freely unfolding process this being that we are seems to be an organ by which life knows itself can know itself as a freely unfolding process what tragedy that some measurement of i'm so like this or I'm so like that or I ought to be more something or other gets in the way of that self view when we believe it it shuts down our participation in life it makes us feel separate it makes us feel defined it makes us feel um, yeah, measured. It makes us feel as if it's true that I am like this or like that. So partial, so limited, so untrue. Friends. Don't look to views as having any real authority. Whether about oneself, whether about others, whether about life itself. Views are old hat. Conditioned, formatted, endlessly recycled. Okay. But they're not the truth. The truth is a freely unfolding process. Immediate. Accessible. Every gesture is a gesture of this freely unfolding life. Every breath Every thought, every impression. This human being is life expressing itself freely. This free expression is the party to which we're invited. 
Leave your views at the door. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.